Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special edition of our podcast here on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and today I'm joined by the namesake of our foundation, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning. Normally, our podcasts, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to hear them before, are produced for our subscribing members. But given the nature of the political uh, debate in the United States at the moment, we thought it might be wise uh, for you, our potential new listeners, to hear Dr. Fleming's point of view on the first Trump-Clinton debate. And uh, maybe we'll lure you to our website where you can find some other articles written from Dr. Fleming's point of view. Well, Dr. Fleming, I, uh, as you know, was unable to watch the debate, or maybe that was a good thing. Uh, it was sometime in the middle of the night here in Europe when it happened. And so I'm relying solely upon the European papers uh, to form my initial impression. So I'm very anxious to hear what you have to say. But as I was telling you before we started recording, the impression here was something along the lines of, all Trump had to do was not trip over his shoelaces, but he failed at that. And so democracy for the moment is safe. <laughs> was that your impression of the debate overall? No, not at all. Uh, overall, overall, it was a, it was a, it was a boring debate. Uh, no, there were absolutely no surprises. There were, uh, there were no new issues put on the table. Each candidate more or less said what they had been saying over and over and over. Um, the, uh, the, unfortunately for the, the Clinton camp, the, their objective was to make sure that Trump, uh, fell over his shoelaces or fell off the stage or uttered what adopted a bullying tone, became hysterical, angry, uh, all that he had to live down to the rather low expectations which the left had set. And he really, uh, he made no mistakes of that kind. And that, that was, that was, uh, that was pretty bad. Overall, overall, um, Hillary as a debater, I would say she won the debate. Uh, not, not overwhelmingly, but she, she won. She had, she had all her arguments marshaled. She had her facts. She had her quotations. And uh, on strictly the, 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 the debating rules, on the technicalities, she clearly won. The problem is, is going into the debate, uh, Donald Trump had to prove one thing. The world already loathes Hillary Clinton, more or less. We've had, I mean, Americans have had a belly full of her since she was first lady uh, uh, under her husband. And, um, her, she has, she doesn't wear well. She doesn't improve over time. And, uh, she's, she's bullying, shrieking, hysterical, is subject to temper tantrums of very violent nature. And, uh, and, and she's smug and, and uh, conceited. Well, a lot, the, uh, she held her temper last night. She, she was very calm throughout, but she could not control her worst quality, and that is her smugness. As Trump would be talking and, you know, laying out some, <laughs> so what, one of his ideas or proposals, she would have a smirk on her face, and the kind of knowing smirk you get from a teenager when the parents are trying to talk sense. You know, like, oh, I've heard all that before. And um, I was reminded immediately of um, of uh, Al Gore when in uh, debating uh, George W. Bush, 
he would roll his eyes and sigh audibly to show his disapproval because, you know, everybody knows that Al Gore has an IQ of 180 and has, you know, has, uh, you know, invented the Internet and was the secret hero of love story. <laughs> Unfortunately, Al Gore has a lower IQ from, from anything one can gather from intelligence testing in, in his academic career. He's got a lower IQ than George W. And, you know, he he showed how stupid he was by his, the ridiculous behavior that cost that helped to cost him the election. He should have walked away with it. So we had so last last night, uh, Mrs. Clinton did well. She did better than I expected. Uh, I'm not sure I approved her her bright red dress, uh, which uh, although it did make her Botoxed uh, facial skin uh, pop nicely, I guess. <laughs> That was the that was the objective. Uh, Trump, if you want to if you want to uh, criticize Trump, of course, you 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 simply can't analyze some of Trump's sentences. They go they go in three directions at once, and uh, images and ideas jumble together. He makes uh, he makes references to things that nobody seems to understand what he's talking about. Um, and if you read the text, you say, "My goodness, the man's an idiot." The problem is that the way Trump talks is the way most Americans talk today. Americans do not speak in complete sentences. They do not make their reference points clear. They do, they're constantly jumbling everything up until you have to, excuse me, you have to say, I'm sorry, what are we talking about now? What, what was that you said? We're used to people who talk like Trump. This is, this is normal everyday reality. And if you ever hear, uh, a, uh, a, a senior news commentator ad lib, uh, you'll see that they talk that way too. I, I was once listening, I was driving in South Carolina and, uh, Dan Rather had done a, given a speech the night before to the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina. And he ad libbed much of the speech. And so they were playing some of the ad libs and you said, my goodness, this man can't complete a sentence. It was, it was completely incoherent because if, because if, if he doesn't have a writer, you know, he's a newsreader. That's what they call them in England. And new, they, he reads a script that's written for them. Our politicians are merely, they're merely a speech readers. So, uh, Trump's inarticulate, uh, <laughs> his inarticulate English and his uh, sort of buffoonish manner, uh, we're used to that. So overall, uh, it was disappointing that, uh, there, there was really no substantive, uh, discussion. The argument basically came back to, uh, what Trump, Trump's position is if, if you like the past eight years of disaster and economic stagnation and foreign policy nightmares, then vote for Hillary Clinton. If you want to, if you want relief from this misery, then vote for me. Hillary Clinton's position, which I describe as biblical, that is, uh, uh, my predecessor, my, my, uh, Barack Obama scourged you with whips, but I shall scourge you with scorpions. You know, I, I'll raise, uh, I'll raise your taxes. I'll have more anti-white biased, uh, policies. I will uh, intervene around the world, uh, causing chaos. You know, uh, she like uh, the the uh, the devil in the Saint Michael prayer. She'll prowl the world, seeking the ruin of nations. Mm. And um, apparently, uh, this this was not especially successful. 
the uh, there was uh, the Charlotte Observer, which in North Carolina is a, an important swing state. I think at the beginning, Hillary thought she had it. I think Obama had it the first time, lost it the second time. Uh, and uh, and Charlotte is the not quite the liberal center of the state, but almost. And they got 21 people of mixed race, different races, sexes and uh, and political orientation going in. Uh, there were four who said they were undecided but leaning toward Hillary. All four at the end of the debate said they would never vote for Hillary. Now, if she did so brilliantly, how can these four undecided independents who were leaning toward Hillary, how can they have been persuaded? And the simple answer is, well, it's twofold. One, because Trump didn't actually make a fool of himself. He uh, he put in, for him, a good performance. I mean, for anybody else, you'd say, you know, uh, a, a thousand clowns were running around the stage. But for Donald Trump, it seemed awfully presidential compared to the Trump we saw during the Republican debates. On the other hand, uh, Mrs. Clinton, it was, as the teenagers in America like to say, same old, same old. She she said everything she was saying when her husband was president, everything she's been saying ever since, spend more money, raise taxes, the the rich are the problem. Even and, and I don't think she can even confront the reality that it is rich people who who get create and give jobs to poor people. This because in her mind and in the mind of Barack Obama and 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 Bill Clinton, government creates opportunities by taking from the wealthy and creating boondoggle programs, which they then staff with people who are their obedient slaves. And that is basically what the Democratic Party has been doing since 1932. It's what the great Sir Henry Sumner Maine, one of the most acute English, uh, the most acute political thinkers uh, of the past several centuries. Maine said under under the old system of corruption, the king bought par- members of parliament with his own money. He said in the system of corruption that, you know, he's writing in the 1880s, in the system of corruption that is coming, the government will tax the productive in order to use their money to buy votes from the uh, from the poor. That that's the new corruption, which institutionalized by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the New Deal and by every uh, every subsequent uh, left wing administration. And, you know, there are people who just have come to realize that maybe maybe this is not this is not going to make any difference, including, by the way, a lot of black Americans who realize they're not going to vote for Trump. But they do realize that after all the all the rhetoric, all the speeches, all the sermons, they're no better off now than they were eight years ago. Did the moderator play any sort of role, Dr. Fleming? Yeah, that was amusing. Lester Holt, uh, you know, he's he's generally regarded as a distinguished moderate, which means you know he's uh, <laughs> he's he's a, a right what Lenin would call a, a right communist. Uh, but uh, and he's got a lot of he's friend, he's got a lot of friends in the business at, at, at who are Republicans at Fox News. He uh, what he did, I think he was bullied into doing it by the press in the days leading up to it. He uh, he he tried to fact check Donald Trump into uh, into a loss. 
he interrupted Trump, I think, like 47 times or 41 times. And he interrupted Clinton six or seven times. He, uh, he had a series of follow-up fact check statements like, well, Mr. Trump, you said X, but, and just now, but what, I, what about this? What about that? And then, and keep it up. He, he never treated Clinton as in that way. He was completely one-sided. Now, in the days leading up to the debate, a number of people had weighed in, both uh, not only Republicans, but uh, but Democrats and mainstream media people. Bob Schieffer, who had been moderator, I think, at the, the largest number of these debates historically, Schieffer said it's not the moderator's job to play Encyclopedia Britannica. It's not his job to take sides or to challenge. That's what the candidates do to each other. You're just there to enforce the rules. You're the traffic cop. And people, but you see, during the the sort of quasi-non-debate a few weeks ago where Clinton and Trump appeared at the same venue but not together, the moderator at at that, on that occasion, uh, Matt Lauer uh, was accused of not, uh, of not going after Trump, of having a double standard, of assuming that Hillary was a genius and therefore being more critical and treating Trump, uh, you know, with kid gloves. Now, this wasn't true. Wasn't true at all. Matt Lauer is as left wing as anybody in the media, but the whole point, and it was obvious at the time, the whole point was to set up an atmosphere of intimidation. So that the host of the first debate would know his job was there to slay the dragon Donald Trump. And, um, now the monitor, he was very nice, very pleasant, very smooth. He never got ruffled, never got angry. And so, uh, my wife, for example, was watching the debate with me. She missed this. Uh, but my son, uh, who was sitting on this, uh, in the watching it with us as well. And, you know, he's a uh, young man in his thirties. Um, he, he, he perceived it immediately. And I think that overall, that is one of the big stories of the debate, that the media is out to lynch Donald Trump. And to the extent that that message gets out to undecided voters, it will help prejudice them against Hillary Clinton. It's interesting, Doug, because we saw a lot of this in the lead up to the Brexit vote here in Europe. Uh, in that the media and the establishment lined up everybody. They had President Obama come over. They had the IMF. They had the World Bank. Basically, world, you know, World War III was going to happen. A plague of locusts was going to come. Uh, you know, you lose your house, you lose everything, and they, they'd shoot your kids if Brexit happened. And, and people just looked at all of these predictions and they said, this, this can't possibly be true. And 17 million people voted to leave. And I'm wondering, do you think Americans are going to have the same reaction? Donald Trump is a plague of locusts. It's the end of the world. We're going to have World War III, et cetera. And have the media really not learned that that playbook didn't work for Brexit, but they're applying that exact same playbook on, on your side of the Atlantic? And uh, may, do you think it might spectacularly backfire? Well, uh, we could we could certainly hope so. I think you're absolutely right in your analysis of the media role in Brexit, and it is it is what's going on. Um, I used to I used to listen to national public radio regularly 
be, not for the news reporting, which was always very biased, but because they did a lot of sort of color commentary on local life in America. Now, of course, NPR, all it does is the first, the lead story will be about the persecution of a Mexican lesbian. The next story will be uh, how uh, women are being tortured in some South American country. The third story will be the homosexual problem again. Fourth story will be how blacks are being murdered by white policemen. And then back to, and it's just endless. There's no other story. There's no other story but how some minority group is being persecuted by evil people who happen to look like me. So, uh, but I still listen to their news coverage, you know, at the top of the hour, at the beginning of their shows. And what I've, and during the, during this, uh, uh, campaign season, I've been listening a lot. Because if you if you listen to NPR and then turn on Fox News, you can see what the two sets of liars are saying. A lot of people make the mistake, you know, they believe CNN and NPR, but 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 hate Fox. Or re- my Republican friends say, "Oh, Fox gives you un you know fair and balanced news reporting." No, it gives you Republican Party news. But if you, I have to say that the that NPR and the New Yorker and New York Times are not even trying to put up a false impression of objectivity. They come out of the box every day swinging. Trump is a monster. He's a racist. He's a bigot. He's an anti-Semite. Now, none of that is true, and they and 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 they know it. They know it's not true. They are consciously telling lies. Hillary Clinton palled around. With, with the Trumps for years, took his money. And all of these, all of these, no, Trump was never perceived as even slightly anti-Semitic, certainly not by his Jewish son-in-law, who is backing him all the way. Now, these are, these are simply lies. Frankly, I don't care if somebody's an anti-Semite or a racist or an anti-white or an anti-black racist. These, these, these things are, are, are sort of childish things to talk about. It's like liking vanilla ice cream and not liking chocolate ice cream. I couldn't care less what people think they think because very few people think at all. But the idea that a big businessman who's been making money with Jewish and Arab partners, who has, who has many, many friends in the, in the black entertainment community, portraying him as a, as a Ku Kluxer is hilarious. And therefore, you know, uh, that, that every day the media coverage is so wildly out of touch with reality that all it takes is for some undecided or troubled person to turn on a, uh, a speech or something of Trump and realize, well, the guy may be a buffoon, but he's, he's not what I've been led to believe. And I, I think it's, it's been steadily backfired. They went so far over the past month. And, and it was working for a while because people said, well, all the media can't be lying to me, can they? Well, of course they lie. They're always lie every day about everything. If the me, if, if the mainstream media says it's going to rain today, you know, it's going to be sunny all day long. So, uh, yeah, it, it is, it, it, people are weary. And the, the, the general impression in opinion polls is that people trust the media less than they trust Congress. And that, that is really saying something. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because we saw with President Obama uh, that his links with uh, terrorist groups or with his uh, pastor, uh, th- that had a, a bit more uh, smoke and fire to it than these charges against Trump. But that didn't really play into uh, his election either. 
No, no. They when they played the Reverend Jeremiah Wright saying, "God damn America, God damn America," and uh, the Obama said, "Well, they never heard that before." Well, <laughs> the people who had gone to this church and by the this remember uh, who is that crazy uh, uh, loony Catholic priest who tries to talk like a uh, a Negro in Chicago Flager, who is uh, temporarily disciplined by his bishop. Well, you know Flager would go to this church to denounce white people. Um, you know uh, it was. Every Sunday, it was black nationalist, white-hating uh, sermons. And so the, the, the media never, never fact-checked, never went and interviewed just normal people. Well, you go to this church. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Well, no, no. normal people would say, of course, that's why I go here. I hate, I hate white people. <laughs> look, and, and the idea that Obama's a Christian, you know, look, because he went to this church. Look, this is United Church of Christ. In the United Church of Christ, they only, they, their creed is very simple. You have to, you have to wholeheartedly subscribe to a woman's right to murder her baby and for two men to get married. That's about it. And global warming. Those are about the three things you have to believe in if you're United Church of Christ. You don't have to believe in the creation of the universe by God. You don't have to believe in that uh, Jesus is, is the Son of God. You don't have to believe that, that in the resurrection of the body. None of that. None of that. Just, just, uh, you know, just abortion and gay marriage. And the idea that that makes you a Christian because you go to a church, you're drawn there by your anti-white racism. That, and that never became an issue. Never. Well, you're bringing up some issues now, Dr. Fleming, and we, we don't have time, obviously, to get into everything yeah. in the debate. But I think it might make sense for us to pinpoint a few issues, talk about Clinton and Trump's views, and then what uh, what would you would say the Fleming Foundation's position yeah. on some of these things would be? So we'll start with the uh, I'll give you the uh, the slow ball the slow pitch, which would be foreign policy. Uh, you know, Mrs. Clinton's position, Trump's position, and what would the foundation's position be? Yeah, the uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton, of course, has supported every every imaginable war, starting with. The uh, immoral and illegal war on, on on Serbia and Yugoslavia, and going on from there. She she and her party have fomented war all around the globe in the name of women's rights or the name of liberation or Islamic rights, and the the, the disastrous Arab Spring is the result. And of course, the Republicans have have given as well. We've had we've had uh, two invasions of Iraq. And all of these wars, especially the Iraq war, have caused incredible suffering to the people uh, on the ground. I mean, we're dealing, when they give you the battlefield, the casualties in Iraq, they leave out the million or so civilian dead that took even out of starvation that took place between the two Iraq wars. So you're, it has been a complete disaster as the U.S. has tried to use its military muscle to control the world. We're building, we are the evil empire. And, and all attempts to, to uh, turn the tables and say, no, it's Putin. No, no. When you look across the world, if you want to find oppression and death and torture and slaughter, that is at the hands of the U.S. government, and and Hillary Clinton has been a leader in this, and Trump has Trump has been ambivalent on many of these, but basically he says, "Where's the money in this? It costs us a huge amount of money, and we don't get anything." 
His argument was that we should seize the oil in Iraq once we were there. He was pretty lukewarm about going there. He, he blew hot and cold, but he was more or less against it, although he's, he's on record as saying, well, it's okay. But he said, take the oil, raise an army and, and, and protect these people. And, and you could have, you know, you could have, you could have stopped ISIS by that means. Whether you could or not is, uh, is irrelevant. The point is that Trump is a business oriented pragmatist on foreign policy. He's not that he's, he's no pacifist. He doesn't believe in just war, but he believes in war that make a profit, war that gives the American people something. No war we have fought in my lifetime has given us anything, starting with Vietnam. They were all stupid mistakes. So uh, the, the position we have taken consistently is that defensive wars are, are, are necessary, and, it is, and wars in defense of a sworn ally are often necessary, but that's why you're, you're careful about making uh, alliances. But wars fought on trumped-up principles and trumped-up causes, like, for example, he may be he may be hoarding weapons of mass destruction, which he might be able to use against some neighbor. That <laughs> if you if you went through life shooting your neighbor because you thought he might be planning something against you, you'd be in jail. So the the these policies, not just what we've done, but the but the justification, the legal and moral justification we've used has always been false, completely bogus. This would they would not have washed in the in the days when the Romans were conquering the world. So the the uh in foreign policy you have a very clear distinction between basically a peace oriented pragmatist and a lunatic imperialist. Would you say she's basically an even stronger version of George W. Bush? Yeah, much. Do you, how do you think the American people are, you know, are, are looking at this because they've now lived through Afghanistan and Iraq and the destabilization of the Middle East? Do you think the American people are thinking, you know, what we need is we need more of this? Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly, uh, we certainly, uh, when we look around the world, I don't think there's anybody who is welcoming a U.S. intervention in their country. The next question I'm going to ask about, which is probably what kicked the whole campaign for Trump off, is immigration. That's This is a worldwide hot issue. It's an issue in Australia. It's an issue in, in Europe, in Africa. And it's certainly always been an issue over on your side of the ocean. Uh, again, Mrs. Clinton's position, Trump's position, and the foundation's position. Yeah. Well, uh, Mrs. Clinton believes, in fact, her campaign has recently said that there is a right for everybody in the world to, em to immigrate to uh, the United States. This has been de facto the position of the Democratic Party for uh, decades, ever, ever since Ted Kennedy crafted the immigration bill that has uh, been ha virtually ruined our country. Immigration has been the most important issue for in America since the late 1970s, except that the Republicans would never touch it. I started arguing this, these positions in public in the, in the very early 80s, and I was told by Republican foundations and by Republican donors that just to leave it alone, because big business requires cheap labor. 
as Edward Abbey summed it up, uh, the uh, the Democrat, the liberals want their cheap cause. The 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 uh, the Republicans want their cheap labor. This is this this has been a, a coalition of the two parties conspiring to destroy the United States. Trump is the first. Other the other politicians have called for restrictions on immigration, uh, but uh, but they've always been minority candidates or third party candidates like Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot. Trump is the first major candidate, even 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 with any hope of winning a nomination, much less an election, to embrace a robust a robust enforcement of current immigration law, a stiffening of those laws, and and a determination to keep illegal immigrants out, whether with a wall or by by, by whatever means. He is abs- this is this is the issue that turned him from a, a business economic oriented candidate who was making some headway but really not going anywhere. But when he when he started talking about the wall, it turned his campaign around. He forced the other uh, Republicans to begin to echo him, and and uh, before long, he uh, he uh, he became the leading spokesman for true immigration reform. You know, what, mostly when they say immigration reform, they that what they really mean is let them all come. That's what immigration legalize everybody here, throw down the barriers, let our country become taken over by by non-Americans. So in this respect. Uh, that, that, that is the central issue of the Trump campaign. And in fact, uh, my, my old friend John O'Sullivan, who, and he was editor of, uh, National Review. It was a, you know, Margaret Thatcher advisor. Uh, John used to call uh, this constellation of issues the national question. That is immigration. Now he was in favor of free trade because he was a good Tory and a good Republican here. But the, the national question, really, it's all one question. It's, it's trade and the exporting of jobs. It's, it's, uh, it's immigration and it's globalization of decision making. In other words, transferring authority to NATO, the UN or, or, or losing national sovereignty. All of, all of these issues, uh, all in, in all of them, Trump happens to be, I don't know quite why, but he has, as my, my dissertation professor Douglas Young would say, he has deviated into rectitude. He has stumbled upon the truth. And that's what I, that's why I find his campaign so amazing because he is not a coherent mind. He's not a, he can't speak two sentences without seeming to make a fool of himself. But on the most important questions that face us today, he is, he is more or less right. The last uh, area that I'd like to discuss is that of, you could say, free trade or job creation. Uh, yeah. What? What? How would you summarize the candidates' positions? Well, uh, Hillary, of course, believes that the answer to the job losses in America is more government action, in the sense of giving out welfare, giving out unemployment, giving giving so-called job training, and creating uh, cre- creating uh, uh, non-jobs. That is, uh, g- uh, making uh, the American working force uh, put them to work for the government. Uh, Trump is a classic Republican businessman. He believes that businessmen create jobs and that, uh, and that the, the less they are regulated, the better, but that, and that, however, the government's job is to protect American industry. They can only do this by having 
uh, uh, realistic trade policies, and those trade policies include an honest look at what really amount to tariffs. So an issue which for many years uh, my, my friend and former board chairman David Hartman uh, advanced was that he pointed out that in the, like the 10, 15, or 20 uh, of, our tr- of our rivals in trade uh, in, the, uh, in the world, all the countries of the EU, Canada, Japan, that all of them had means by which they gave tax advantages to their own industries and tax penalties to foreigners. And this could amount in some countries to as much as a 30% price advantage. Now, when you throw, <laughs> when you throw in, uh, when you throw in the cost of shipping, et cetera, it explained why Japan and China and Germany were, were beating our brains out in, uh, in, uh, in com- competing for industrial products. So, uh, Hartman's solution was, you know, to have something like a VAT tax and to regulate it the way, uh, they do in the European Union. The European Union systematically discriminates against the American industry. And the fact that neither, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans will even talk about this. It doesn't exist. They deny it. You could show them on paper time after time, show them exactly how these policies work, and they lie because they are not inter- neither party is interested in the well-being of, of, of American business and industry because they sit on corporate boards of multinational corporations. By the way, they also sit on corporate boards of multinational organizations that are involved in international politics in the Ukraine, in some of the breakaway states from the Soviet Union. Their policy, the policies of former secretaries of state and secretaries of defense in both parties are usually motivated by self-interest. Their hatred of Putin, their, their, their position on the Ukraine, you can usually follow the money and find out what board do they sit on that, that has an interest in this. So, again, uh, Trump has picked up an issue which I was beating the drum for 25 years ago, and, 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 and uh, Pat Buchanan picked it up. And but Trump is a major candidate who is completely right on the trade issue. And it's trade and immigration. Those two issues put together are uh, the most important things that right and 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 a, and, a, and a quieter foreign policy that should be enough to make any sane person uh, hold his nose and and vote for this very improbable candidate, Donald Trump. Well. I think that's a, a great summary of those those three issues, Dr. Fleming. Now, for our listeners who, as I said, may be listening to you for the first time, don't know anything about the foundation, can you give a, a brief preachies of what we're trying to do with the foundation, both in our podcasts and in our articles? Our, uh, to put very simply, I've all, I didn't want to die as dumb as the day I was born, you know, and unfortunately, American education uh, at all levels, but human, especially human, education in the humanities and literature, philosophy, the so-called social, so-called sciences, it's to create people who are so stupid they can't see the reality around them, nor can they enjoy the beautiful things that have been created in the past. 
Our, our purpose, and with our, our rather tiny little foundation, our purpose is to help people appreciate these traditions, take a realistic view of the world around them, which means a more or less Machiavellian view, assuming that there are interested motives in power politics everywhere, to quit pretending that we live in a free country and a free democracy and that everything is just hunky-dory. So po political realism on the one hand, while developing an appreciation for classical antiquity, for the, for the traditions of Christian civilization, and also for a, 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 to enjoy life uh, while we're here, which means eating well, drinking well, fishing well, whatever it is, to learn to enjoy it. So those, are, those are the three, the three pillars of our little foundation. You can find more uh, of Dr. Fleming's writings as well as some others who write for the foundation at simply Fleming.foundation. I can't promise that we will have other podcasts uh, for the other debates because I thought it was quite a lot for me to ask Dr. Fleming to watch this first one all the way through. So uh, we might have some... <laughs> we, we, we might have some further commentary, but again, this was just an opportunity for us to give you a bit of an insight into the foundation's thinking broadly, but uh, specifically within the context of these debates and these two candidates. Uh, if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please feel free to email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that this special edition of our podcasts is covered by uh, being a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. Want to give a special thanks to our Gold and Charter members who help to produce our regular podcasts and most of our website. We also want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>